Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Barry. Uh, I've learned at Canterbury Gardens uh, to make sure I show up to the preaching team meetings uh, because if you don't show up, you get uh, the rough end of the stick, like you might get four chapters of Exodus or something like that. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to try and come to the next time you guys have a meeting. Uh, Look, all jokes aside, this, this is building up to the climax of of the Exodus uh, passages that you guys are are looking at. And and although, yes, we've got four chapters to get through, I also get to tell you next week about the climax of the story, the tenth plague and the Passover and the actual Exodus, the Exodus that Exodus is named after. Uh, So let me just quickly give you historical context. I know that uh, you guys have been doing this for a number of weeks. We're about 350 years after Joseph has died, Israel has grown from a family into a massive group of people. You think your family gatherings are big? This is three million people. Uh, and that's okay, they've had a few hundred years to get there. Uh, and God's previous promises to Israel about making them a great nation seem to be dissolving in front of their eyes. Instead of a great nation, they're in great pain. Instead of blessing, they feel burdened. Instead of joy, they are experiencing suffering. Uh, and so God has raised Moses and Moses thought he was it in a bit. He was a Hebrew growing up as a, an Egyptian prince and he thought, this is it. Uh, and then God said, no, this is not it yet. And he humbled Moses. Moses had to flee. Uh, Moses spent a long time in the wilderness and now Moses has been raised up as the person and he has been brought back. And God tells his plan to Moses. He says, hey, I'm going I'm to do signs and wonders and miracles and Pharaoh's not going to listen and I'm going to bring judgment on Egypt and then I'm going to rescue my people. Why? Because so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's what God says. Now we're going to ask a series of questions here and I hope to also explore with you uh, the answers to those questions. First thing I'm going to ask you, do you believe this really happened? These stories sometimes seem a bit far out. Sometimes people will want to explain them away with uh, metaphorical explanations. Uh, It was as if it was dark. It was as if every child had died. Uh, I want to suggest to you that this is a reliable historical account. I want to tell you for two reasons. One, it's in the Bible. The Bible is a reliable historical account. We know that from other times that the Bible has been tested and found to be true. Secondly, I want to introduce you to a document called the, uh, excuse my Egyptian, the Ipua Papyrus. Papyrus meaning the papyrus form of document. Uh, The Ipua Papyrus is an ancient document that now lives in a museum in the Netherlands and it's a poem. It's a poem called Admonition. Listen to what some of this poem says and think about if you can Uh, draw any parallels from Exodus 7 through to 10. Plagues are throughout the land. Blood is everywhere. The river is blood. Men are shrinking from tasting it and are thirsting after water. That is our water. That is our happiness. What shall we do in respect of this? All is ruin. Sound familiar? This, dates, this document dates uh, after the time of the Exodus. Uh, here's another quote from the papyrus. All animals, their hearts weep. Cattle moan. 
Cattle are left astray. There is no one to gather them together. I'll skip down a few. Uh, I'd, I'd love to read you all of them, but I won't. Uh, here's, here's, a, here's a clean show that we'll, see, we'll talk about next week. The children of princes are dashed against the walls. The children of princes are cast out in the streets. He who places his brother in the ground, he who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. There is groaning throughout the land, mingled with lamentations. And then we we get a picture of the actual exodus. Gold, lapis lazuli, silver, malachite, carnelian, bronze are fastened on the neck of my female slaves. Behold, there is a fire mounted up on high. Its burning goes forth against the enemies of the land. Sounds like a pillar of fire to me. Sounds like slaves walking out with their riches. It's amazing. It's really, really happened. So then I'll go to the next question. Why did it happen? I don't know if you've got little kids in your life, grandkids or children of your own or kiddies at your school. Uh, they love to ask why. And then when you give them an answer, they say, well, why is that the answer? <laughs> and you tell them why is that the answer. Well, why is that the answer for the answer? Um, and on and on it goes. I'm going to do that to you today. And when we ask why, it actually goes down and down and down until we discover something about God that helps us discover something about ourselves and our relationship with God and it helps us see what we can learn about God. So we're going to ask why. What's God doing? Why is he doing it? What is he trying to achieve? Did he achieve it? So on. I'm going to suggest to you that we're going to discover four things. And here's the first thing I think we're going to discover. God's purpose involves bringing glory to himself and people into a relationship with him. I'll say that again. God's purpose involves bringing glory to himself and people into a relationship with him. Here's one of my favourite quotes. I'll tell you where it's from in a second. There's no escaping reason, no denying purpose, for as we know, without purpose we would not exist. It is purpose that created us, purpose that connects us, purpose that pulls us, that guides us, that drives us. It is purpose that defines us, purpose that binds us. This will give it away. We are here because of you, Mr Anderson. We're here to take from you what you tried to take from us, purpose. It's a quote from The Matrix. Sometimes I wonder if I'm in The Matrix. (laughs) But asking why... takes us down to purpose. What is the purpose? What was the purpose? So let's try it. Why did God bring the plagues? Exodus 7 and Exodus 10 tell us it was to bring his people out of Egypt and to display his power. Well, why did he want his people to come out of Egypt? He wanted to rescue them and take them to the promised land. We know that from Exodus 3. We know from Exodus 14, he said, I'm going to gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. Well, why did God want to bring his people out into their own land? Because he wanted to keep his promise to them. He made that in Genesis 12. To your offspring, I'm going to give this land. So they could be free to worship him. God wanted to be true to himself. He wanted to take credit for what he had said and what he would do. And it was for the same reason that he chose them in the first place. He didn't really need Israel. He didn't really need us either. But God chooses us 
because he wants to bring glory to himself and he wants us to be in a relationship with him. Now, before you think this is a new idea, it's not. I hope you've heard of something called the Westminster Catechism which says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, giving glory to God and being in relationship with him. That's why he chose Abraham. That's why he had Noah build a, a boat in the desert and flood the whole world to display his power. That's why he rescued Jacob and, and raised up Joseph and he did all those things. He wants to display his power. He wants to be glorified. He, and in fact, it's kind of a, a righteous, holy showing off. Only God is in the place to do that. We sort of don't, we're not into show-offs because when a human shows off, they try to be better than what they really are. That's not true of God. I sometimes look at the starry sky at night and I say, I wonder why that's there. And I think to myself, maybe it's because God's showing off. And he's allowed to do that. He's got it. It's not possible for God to try to be better than he is. He's in a different category to you and I. John Piper says uh, that there's probably no text in the Bible that reveals God's passion for his own glory uh, more clearly than Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. And it says this, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I might not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? Or how would I allow my name to be profaned? My glory I would not give to another. That's God speaking of his own desire that he would be glorified. And that is God's ultimate goal to uphold and display the glory of his name. And I've got 25 reasons uh, why I believe that's true, uh, thanks to John Piper. God created us for his glory. He called Israel for his glory. He rescued them out of Egypt for his glory. It goes on and on and on. He gave them Canaan for his glory. Jesus sought the glory of the Father in everything he did. We're under judgment for dishonouring God's glory. God forgives our sin for his own sake, for his glory. God instructs us to do everything for his glory. Jesus will come again for God's glory. And in the new Jerusalem, God's glory will replace the sun. God's ultimate goal is his own glory. Which kind of makes me ask the question, I always thought God was for me. As in, you know, he was my baraka. I don't, I don't think so. God's kind of into himself. Now before you say that's arrogance and selfishness, those two things are not mutually exclusive for God to be for me, but for himself. Because when God is for himself, it makes him want to display his character. And when he displays his character, that's really, really good for me. Because he's 100% loving and he's 100% pure and he's 100% merciful. I need to remind myself often that actually God's not there for me. I'm here for him. I'm here for him. The fact that God is three in one, the fact that he bothered to create people at all, 
the fact that he had this plan of salvation to rescue his people is evidence, to me at least, that God's purpose is not just his glory, but he wants relationship. God desires us to be in relationship with him. He could have defeated the Egyptians and displayed his power over them without Israel even being there. He could have just done that. But it's no accident that this happens in the context of relationship. God says to people, hey, I want you out of there. I want you to be with me. I want you to be my people. And I'm going to prove how much I want that. God is bringing his people out for that reason. He also could have had relationship with them while they were slaves. God could have made that happen. He could have found a way for them to be his people while they were in another land. But he also wanted the glory. He wanted to be true to his word. He wanted to show that he is the Lord. You hear that multiple times in these chapters. At the end of this, you're going to know that I am the Lord. Moses gives that message to Pharaoh. God gives that message to Moses. He tells the Israelites, you're going to know that I'm the Lord. That is God exercising his sovereign control and his sovereign rule over the whole of the universe to bring about these two things, to display his glory and to come into relationship with his people. So I'm going to ask you a handful of questions. What is it in your life that's got you asking why? And when you ask why and you get an answer, does it just make you ask why again? Are you frustrated that you're not achieving your purposes? Have you got goals that are not coming to fruition? Is it possible that God is achieving his goals which are different to yours? How would you describe your relationship with God? Is it distant? Is it non-existent? Are you feeling like a slave calling out for help and not getting hurt? Does it feel like 350 years? Do you feel like God's maybe brought you this far and then it feels like everything just stopped? The promises you thought you were relying on have not come true yet? Can I encourage you to bring that to God? When God responded to his people that was in response to their crying out, he hears us. And one thing I've learned in relationship is actually it's healthy to express how you feel. Not in an accusing way, but actually, Carolyn will know this, and I'm not so great at it. Guys, you might be the same. It's good to say how you feel. God loves that from us. God loves to hear how we feel. I encourage you to do that. The second thing I think that these verses, or sorry, these chapters, 7 through 10, show us is that Not only God's purpose is to have glory in relationship, but he can achieve that despite of people's opposition. Now you might say that's a no-brainer. There was a congregation who once called a new pastor and uh, the search committee appointed someone, but the church was not so sure that this pastor could live up to the old one. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Uh, And the search committee decided they'd put him to test. So after church one day... They went out to a local lake for a picnic and after loading everything up into a boat they rowed out to a little island on the lake and halfway across uh, to the island uh, one of the members 
spontaneously stood up and went, Oh no, we forgot the sausages. Someone will have to go and swim back to get them. Knowing that he was being put to the test, the pastor stood up, uh, took off his shirt, uh, walked across the water and retrieved the sausages and walked back across the water and got back in the boat. Most were amazed and impressed, except for the one critic who said, See, I told you he's no good, he can't even swim. (laughs) You always are going to have naysayers. You'll have naysayers in your church, you'll have naysayers outside of your church. There'll be naysayers no matter what it is that you do. If we're waiting for a time that there's no opposition or that the opposition is quashed, that actually won't ever come. God asks us to be obedient despite of opposition. No doubt here Pharaoh has set himself up in opposition for God and, and God demonstrate that he can, demonstrates that he can and he will prevail against opposition from men or women. In fact, I love this little song that is on one of my kids' DVDs and it goes like this. It's a DVD about Bible stories, including the people of Israel. It says, you can't stop a train, I'm not going to sing, by standing in the track. You can't stop a buffalo by saying, hey, come back. And standing in the way of what God is going to do will be really, 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 really not so good for you. (laughs) My kids like singing that. And then every every now and again, people's uh, names get exchanged in the song and so on. Pharaoh set himself up in opposition to God and it was really, really not so good for him. And if we think about it, if we know who God is, we believe that God is who he says he is, that he has omnipotent power and omniscient knowledge and he can do anything to anyone at any time, no matter what, you would never, knowing that, oppose God. And you wouldn't really be concerned when others oppose God, would you? I mean, God is big enough to handle that. Or would we? Would we ever oppose God, knowing who he is? Would we ever be concerned when others oppose God, knowing who God is? I think we do. I think the practical reality is that we do get concerned and we do sometimes oppose God because we have two kinds of belief. We have our cerebral head knowledge. I read the facts, I adopt the facts into my brain. Uh, If someone asks me the facts, they come out of my brain through my mouth and I tell you the facts but my practical beliefs, the beliefs that display when I'm asked to behave or I'm given the conduct uh, of physical reality in the, in the world can often be a different thing. And so sometimes, actually, yeah, I am like the Pharaoh. I say, oh, I've sinned. Yes, I'll now do the right thing until the pressure comes off and I say, actually, no, it doesn't suit me that much anymore. I have two kinds of beliefs. And when I do that, actually I'm opposing God. I'm in my head, knowing that God is an omniscient, omnipotent, uh, gee, I hate those words. Uh, He's a really big, powerful God. And I'm an idiot for trying to stand in the way. But I do it because there's a not strong connection between my head and my behaviour, my practical behaviour. We can also sometimes be a bit like the Israelites. When Moses first goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, Pharaoh, you know, you're going to have to let these people go. He goes, what? You've got time for this? You've got too much time on your hands. Right. 
No more straw for you. You have to go find your own now. And the, and the Israelites, they feel so oppressed that they actually turn on Moses and they say, may God judge you for what you've done to us here. What they were actually doing was looking at their circumstances and forgetting that the Egyptians were opposing their God. Their God, who was the really big, powerful, almighty God over everything. And what they were looking at was a bunch of Egyptian rulers standing in the way of what God is going to do. They kind of got their measures out of whack. So let me ask you a couple of other questions. What opposition are you facing from people? What people are standing in the way of what you reckon God is going to do? Maybe you personally are facing opposition. Maybe your church. Maybe corporately you're up against some opposition. Where is it that you've got to try and make a connection between that head knowledge, that knowledge that says, well, this is the God of the Bible. This is what he says about himself. This is what he says he can do. How can we practically today in 2016 live that out? How can we behave as if God is going to do that? Give him the space to do it. What opportunity have you got to ask God? Hey God, would you please display your power here? Because we'd like you to be the one who gets the credit. We'd like you to be the one who gets the glory. We'd like to see your hand at work in this circumstance. So firstly, God's purpose is to bring glory to himself and relationship with his people. Secondly, he can achieve that purpose despite man's opposition. Thirdly, he can achieve that purpose despite spiritual opposition. Now there's plenty of scholars out there who uh, will produce a table and show you all the plagues and the different gods that that was targeting I'm not so convinced of the numerical significance of ten plagues, although it does have one for each finger. Uh, I'm not even that convinced, to be honest, about the specificity of the plagues and the number of Egyptian gods. They had much much more than ten gods. Uh, And sometimes the lining up of the plague and the god is not beautiful. Uh, But that actually doesn't matter. What does matter is that God's display of power was clearly on show. God was actually saying, hey, Watch me flex my muscle here, Egypt. Let me just tell you a little bit about who you're up against. And even though, although the magicians at the start, you know, they thought they had God covered. Oh yeah, I can turn a stick into a snake, no problem. Uh, I can turn water into blood, says the magicians. I can even call frogs up onto the land. Uh, but then they start to run out of access to spiritual power. And when their power is depleted, God keeps going and he starts producing gnats and they can't do it and they say, oh, this appears to be the finger of God. And they start saying, Pharaoh, maybe you should listen to this guy, Moses. And on and on it goes. We don't hear any more about the magicians after they, their attempts start failing except to hear that they had boils and they were a bit uncomfortable and they couldn't appear in front of Pharaoh uh, when Moses was around again. God made a distinction between the way he looked after his people in the land of Goshen and what happened to the Egyptians. I don't know if uh, you're into the Olympics. I was watching the Boomers play basketball yesterday. 
bit disappointing. Um, and uh, in the end, Serbia was playing against them. That was, Serbia was so far ahead that although there was still 10 minutes to go, we were already defeated. Can I suggest to you that we live in that kind of circumstance right now? This earth is not over. This life is not finished. Uh, but Satan is already defeated. It's already done. There is no possible way for Satan to defeat God. It's proven. It's done. It's finished. And that one day it will ultimately be finished forever. The final siren will go and that will be it. Notice too that God didn't say to Israel, hey, I want you to fight the Egyptians and fight your way out of here. God actually said to Israel, I want you to watch. Watch me. Watch what I can do. Why? Why did he say that? Go right back to where we started. So he would display his glory, so he could have the glory for himself. So that people wouldn't say, oh, the Israelites, they're amazing. He wanted people to go, ooh, the Israelites' God, he's amazing. So let me ask you these questions. What attack from the enemy? What is it about Satan and his work that really upsets you? Is it war? Is it the secularisation of everything? Is it this deliberate move to get God off of every bit of paper and every bit of inch of society? Is it the dismissal of God's standards and relationships? or in government, or in how we deal with others? Do you believe God's big enough to handle those things? Do you think it's up to you to fix it? Are you able to look back at your life? Maybe you're still young like me, but are you able to look backwards at life and say, wow, I think God has done amazing things so far in my life. And unlike the share market, I can use past performance to judge future performance. God has displayed what he's like in the past. He doesn't change. I can rely on that. What issue in the future is causing you concern? Can you pivot today? Can you pivot from the future to the past and then back to the future? Didn't mean to say those words. (laughs) Back to the future. Uh, Can you pivot to the past and then to the future and rely on God to be true to his word just like he has been in the past? Fourthly, God can bring about his purposes with a starting point of zero. God's purpose is to display his glory and bring relationship. He can do it despite man's opposition He can do it despite spiritual opposition and he can do it with a starting point of zero. Here's a quote that I've read from D.L. Moody, fantastic uh, preacher and a fantastic quote. Moses spent 40 years thinking that he was somebody, 40 years learning that he was nobody and then 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. (laughs) Fantastic. Rob reminded you last week Moses thought he was going to be the rescuer. He thought he was it. And then he was humbled. And then you see this broken man being sent by God back to Pharaoh despite his lack of confidence, 
despite his speech impediment, and we see God reveal how he can do amazing things with a nobody. Now often, I hope it's often, sometimes you and I will feel inadequate. We feel faulty. We feel unworthy. We feel like, you know what, if I, if I have to serve in this thing, I'm going to make mistakes that other people are not going to make. And can I say, those are all true. Those things are true. And those things don't matter. Because they are not God's criteria. You know, sometimes we say, well, oh, God wouldn't choose me or shouldn't choose me for these reasons. One, two, three, four. Those things are not on God's criteria list. Thankfully, his purpose is not for us to look good. That's not his purpose. That's why he chose a childless couple to start a family that would ultimately be the people of Israel. That's why he told Noah to go into the desert and build a ship. You know, who'd ever seen a ship before? That's why he asked a man with a speech impediment to go and be his speech maker in front of Pharaoh. That's why you have Andy Boy on the platform. It's because looking good is not God's criteria. It's not for us. It's not for us to look good. It's for God to look good. It's for his glory. In fact, I think God kind of prefers it. If we read 2 Corinthians 12.10, I delight in my weakness, in your insults, in hardship, in my persecutions, in difficulties, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What Paul is telling is, you know, when I'm at my weakness, when I'm at my weakest, I turn around and I lean on God because that's all I've got left. And then God says, yeah, and that's when you're strongest. That's when you're at your strongest. When my only option is to lean on God, then I'm on the surest ground. I know this for myself. When I set out and I feel comfortable and confident, I say, yeah, I can handle this. I can do this. This is in my sweet spot. Boy, am I in trouble. And when it's something is well outside my abilities and I turn in my little immature, panicked way like one of my kids and I go, ah, help. Actually, that's when God comes through and that's when he gets the credit. So what? Let me tell you why that matters. It means this. It means that God can save that family member who is lost and who you can't see how they could ever, ever come to Christ. It means God could redeem the guilt that you feel about your past. In fact, he may even use it for his own purposes even though you can't see it. It means God can intervene in, the, in that situation where all hope seems to have dissolved. It, mean God, it means God, that God can use you in that area where you're feeling prompted but you're super vulnerable and you feel super hopeless. You feel weak. It means God doesn't give second chance. He means he, it means he already knows you had no chance without him. It means that there doesn't even have to be 1% of ability for him to use you for what he wants to do. It means that someone doesn't even have to be looking for him for him to find them. So I can ask you this. What part of your life are you feeling lost? Where is it that you're feeling helpless? And you know what? We've all got those. I've got this thing to do. I believe that I'll have an opportunity to do what's right or maybe to step up and serve in a way. But I feel 
totally inadequate. Maybe it was one of those situations where someone asked for volunteers and you didn't step away fast enough. What area are you feeling like hope is lost? You've been praying for an outcome and it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Where, where is it in your life that you feel like God needs to bring something, not out of something big out of something small, but maybe even something out of nothing? He can do it. He has done it. He will do it again. He's reliable to do that. Because he's sovereign. He's God. I'm going to throw to uh, Nick, I think, or is it Brendan? I don't know, you can fight amongst yourselves for the, for the end.